All right, guys. Good morning. My name is Drew. If I haven't met you yet, it is great to have you all here this morning. We are continuing our series through First and Second Timothy and Titus called Sons of the Faith. And today we have the privilege of starting a new book called Second Timothy. And Second Timothy is Paul's second letter to Timothy, where he is writing toward the end of his life. And he is pleading with Timothy to hold on to the faith. Now, there's a temptation in every generation to forget what true Christianity is and to get confused about what it is. Now, in our generation, I think that there's people who think that Christianity is religion. So Christianity is essentially a set of rules and if you go to church and you don't cuss and you don't drink and you keep this list of rules, then you're good. And if you're not keeping the list of rules, then you're not a Christian. So people think about it in terms of morality. And I think that other people think that Christianity has absolutely nothing to do with morality. And Christianity is sort of a choose-your-own-adventure. And so I can sort of cut out the parts of the Bible that I don't like. I can believe the things that I like. And it's sort of like a string of inspirational sayings that I put together. And I can kind of take the things that I like and abandon the things that I don't like. And what Paul is saying to Timothy very clearly in this book is that he believes that Christianity is life. And here's how he opens the book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying it's neither the presence of rules nor getting to do whatever you want to do, but Christianity is that life is promised in Jesus. So being an unbeliever or being a non-Christian is like being dead. Being a Christian is coming alive in Jesus. So Paul would say either you have life or you don't have life. And the distinguishing mark between those who have life and those who don't have life is what you do with Jesus. And so he gives us three exhortations on how to take hold of this life. Now he's writing specifically to a pastor who's already a Christian, but I think this is going to be widely applicable to all of us. And the first way to take hold of this gift of life that's promised in Jesus is through sincere faith. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, 
which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul spent the majority of his time as an apostle of Jesus suffering. He's in prison. He's writing to Timothy. He's about to die, to be martyred for his faith. It makes sense that Timothy would be afraid to walk forward courageously in his faith. Now, it's often said that Timothy was probably more sensitive temperamentally than Paul. Paul was a bulldog. Timothy was a puppy. But I don't think that that's the most important thing we can say about this text because I think what we have to say is it makes sense that Timothy, being left as a church planter with his mentor about to die, would be afraid to push forward in the faith because he was living in a very trying time. And so Paul is seeking to encourage him, and so he reminds him first of the relationship that Paul has with him. He says, remember the last time we were together. He says, remember the tears. And so we can picture this moment where Paul is saying goodbye to Timothy, and they are both in tears because the story goes that Paul had led Timothy to faith. So he had not only been a mentor for him in terms of pastoral ministry, but when Paul was on his missionary journey, he passed through a town called Lystra. He shared Christ with a young man named Timothy, brought him to faith, and then later served as a mentor for him in pastoral ministers ministry. So as an encouragement to him, he says, remember the relationship that I have with you. Remember the love that I have for you. Remember that you have been mentored by me, and remember that I only want the best for you. Then he also reminds Timothy of the legacy of faith in his family. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And so he's saying, you've got to remember the bedtime prayers that your grandmother and your mom did with you. You've got to remember the way that they instructed you from the scriptures. You've got to remember that when I came to Lystra, they were good Jews, but remember when I came to Lystra that I led them to faith in Jesus and that they even believed in Jesus before you did. Remember that your faith is not something that just came out of thin air, but it came through your grandmother and your mother. Remember that they faithfully shared the good news of Jesus with you and remember that they encouraged you on in this path. Remember that there is a legacy of faith in your family. But notice that Paul isn't saying that because your grandmother was a Christian and because your mother was a Christian, that automatically means that you're a Christian. He's saying to him, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, 
which was also present in your mother and your grandmother. And then he goes on to describe where this faith came from. And I believe that he describes the nature of saving faith in verse 7. He says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So here's what Paul is saying. Yes, I've influenced you in your faith. I've been a mentor to you. I've shared the gospel with you. Yes, you came from a believing family. But here's what saving faith is. It is the work of God's Spirit. It is a gift of God's Spirit. So, in other words, God can use people in your life to bring you to faith, but it is the Spirit of God in you that activates faith. And the Spirit of God is characterized by being a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So here's my encouragement to you. Let's say you're hearing all this and you're like, man, I wish I had a mentor who would write me letters encouraging me in my faith. Man, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I don't have a grandmother and a mother who prayed next to my bedside and who shared the gospel with me. And so you might question the sincerity of your own faith. And let me just encourage you, no matter if you grew up in an unbelieving home or a believing home, your faith is a miracle of God. It is a gift of his love. It is not something that can be passed on automatically from one person to the next. It is a gift of God's Spirit. It is an inward change, and that inward change issues in new life. And then that new life is characterized, as Paul says, by a lack of fear, the presence of power, love, and self-control. But this is really interesting. Because although faith is a miracle that happens by God's grace as we believe in Jesus, it's not automatic that our faith will stay strong. And so Paul is reminding Timothy of what his faith is and where it came from so that he can fan it into flame. So this reminded me of me attempting to build fires in my backyard. So what will often happen, I've got one of those solo stoves, but I'll go out and I'll start to build a fire. And so I'll put some newspaper in there, I'll put some sticks in there, I'll put some logs in there, I'll, I'll light it. I'll think that I've got it going pretty well. And then I'll go inside to grab the s'more supplies for my kids. And go in, get the marshmallows, get the graham crackers, get the Hershey's chocolate, you know, get the, the s'more sticks. It takes me a little while to do it. And I get all that stuff and I come back out. And because I haven't been attending to the fire, it goes from big to real small. We've all had this experience. So frustrating, isn't it? And so, so you think like, okay, you know, this is going to be so great. We're going to get the s'mores going. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, there. And, and sometimes what you have to do is you have to fan 
the fire back into flame. You don't have to get the, the lighter back out necessarily because you can see the sparks are there. You know that the fire is still there. And all you have to do is you have to get down on your hands and knees and you have to blow on it. Or you have to get something to fan it. But the reason that you're blowing on it and the reason that you're fanning it is because there's fire there. You don't blow on something or you don't fan something if you don't believe that there's a fire there. And so here's my encouragement to you. I think some of us, we get discouraged in our faith because it dies down and we've got to fan it back into flame. Here's the perspective change I want you to have. You have to fan it back into flame because it's there. Be encouraged. You're a normal Christian. This is Paul writing to a pastor. He says in another place that he has no one else like Timothy. This is the most faithful pastor that Paul is mentoring. And Timothy has to fan his faith back into flame. And so my encouragement to us is to not be discouraged when our faith wavers, when we struggle with doubt, when we struggle with fear, when we struggle with anxiety, but to see that we're normal. You're just a Christian. And if you come here discouraged, needing encouragement, needing to worship, needing to be with the people of God because you feel like your faith is so weak at times, be encouraged that you are in good company. We need each other. We need God's word to fan our gift of faith into a big old flame. And we've got to do this every single day. So the first way we take hold of the life that's promised in Jesus is through this kind of faith that keeps coming back over and over again. The second thing that Paul says that we need to do to take hold of the life promised in Jesus is to remember our holy calling. Okay, look at verses 8 through 14. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus." who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
So I think one of the temptations that we have today is to begin to think of Christianity as self-improvement or to begin to think of Christianity as a way to make your life better. Here's the paradox of Paul's writing and the teaching of Jesus. The only way to make your life better is to make your life worse. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Paul says, the way to be a consistent follower of Jesus is to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor to be ashamed of Paul as Jesus' prisoner, but to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So here's what was true then that is also true now. The gospel message is not popular. And so here was Timothy's temptation. His tem- Timothy's temptation was to side with those who were opposed to Paul. Here's why. Paul was so focused on glorifying and honoring Jesus and so believed the gospel message that he had no shame in the gospel. And so he went around so boldly proclaiming it that he didn't even count his life of any value or as precious to himself. And so he spent a lot of time in prison. And he was eventually killed for his faith. And so what would happen is other pastors, other leaders in the church, definitely members of the church, would start to look at Paul and think, isn't he taking this thing a little bit too far? Do we really have to believe what Paul believes about sexuality in a pagan culture? Do we really have to believe that it's one man, one woman for life and that anything outside of God's design is sin? Do we really have to say that? Do we really have to stand with him in that? Okay, from a couple weeks ago, do we really have to say with Paul, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority in the church? Do we really have to believe that? Wait, that seems, in a secular pagan culture, that seems shameful. And so our tendency is to start to back away and to distance ourselves from that teaching. And Paul is saying he wants us to join with him in not being ashamed of the gospel which is synonymous with everything that he teaches. You see where I'm getting that from in the text? In verse 13, he says, 
follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Okay, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. This is the 13th of 13. So his other 12 letters that were written prior to this, which Timothy likely had access to, are preserved for us. We know exactly what Paul was talking about. Here's something that's really popular to do. It's really popular to be a red-letter Christian. So I agree with the stuff that Jesus said. I really like the Gospels, at least most of it. And so I kind of stand with Jesus. But then when it comes to the Apostle Paul, I have some real problems with the stuff that he says. Here's what Jesus would say about that. What Paul says is what I say. To be ashamed of Paul is to be ashamed of Jesus. Whether in his theology or in his application of that theology. What Paul writes in his letters is as much the word of God as what came out of the mouth of Jesus. And so here's Timothy's task, and here's my task. Not to shrink back from saying anything that this book says. I'm not trying to invent anything new. I'm not trying to say anything new. Paul is telling Timothy not to say anything new, not to invent anything new, but to follow the pattern of the sound words. It literally means follow the pattern of the healthy words. This is the medicine that you need. So whatever you do in your life, here is the holy calling that you have. It is to crumple up everything that you have ever believed that contradicts the Bible. Throw it in a trash can and burn it. And believe this instead. Because to say that you are a Christian, but you disagree with the Apostle Paul is a contradiction in terms. At any point. New Testament Christianity is synonymous with agreeing with the Apostle Paul and everything that he says. Now, this has been going on for a long time, specifically throwing the Apostle Paul under the bus. So I was a religious studies major in college, and I remember we would read books like what St. Paul really said, or we would read articles dissecting the Apostle Paul and basically uh, psychoanalyzing him as some crazy religious extremist. We spent a lot of time throwing the Apostle Paul under the bus in my religious studies classes. No one ever had one bad thing to say about Jesus. Why? It's not cool to throw Jesus under the bus. Like, even in popular culture, generally speaking, people have nice things to say about Jesus. But Paul is an easy target because he's not claiming to be the Son of God, and he's a little bit distant from Jesus in our minds. But Paul's saying 
in this text that Christianity is tied up in following the pattern of his words. So, let's hear what Jesus has to say about our shame. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, which includes what the Apostle Paul wrote, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Okay, so here's what we want our church to be, and here's what I want all of your lives to be. I want all of us to be like a Y in the road. I want us to so firmly hold on to the truth of the gospel, to speak the truth to the people around us in love, that we force people to make a decision. A decision about Jesus. And the reason that we want our lives to be about that is because of what Paul says in verse 10. He says that by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The reason that it's important that we follow the pattern of these sound words, that we agree with the testimony of Paul, is because in his words are the words of eternal life. And without Christ... People perish forever. And so the most loving thing we can do is stand in disagreement with the wider culture and hold up the promise of life that we have in Jesus. And so the question I have for you is, will you bear the shame with me? When you find something in the Bible that clearly contradicts something that you hold dear or that you believe, which way are you going to go on the road? Are you going to the left or are you going to the right? Guys, I'm telling you, I've been doing this for a long time. This is an incredibly painful process. Because I'm telling you, there are things that you hold very dear that are wrong. And God, through his word, does not just comfort us, he also confronts us. And so here's my experience of reading the Bible often. I get wrecked absolutely devastated. I get mad. How can things be this way? And so this isn't easy, but it is the path of life. And so I'm asking you to join me in this holy calling to, in whatever you do, not to be offended by Jesus or by his servant Paul. Okay, the third way that we take hold of this life that is promised in Jesus is through 
supernatural strength. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Okay, so Paul is telling in a, in a hostile pagan culture, he's telling Timothy to fan into flame his faith, and he's telling him not to be ashamed of the gospel, even though every time he does that, he's risking his, his own neck. And so here's what he knows about Timothy, and here's what he knows about you and me. We cannot possibly do this in our own strength. And so he reminds him that Jesus didn't just come to save us and to give us eternal life. He also came to strengthen us and give us some backbone as we live on this God-forsaken planet to keep on going one step at a time. And so he gives us some great analogies of what it looks like to be a Christian. He gives us three analogies of three really hardworking group of people. First of all, he says that by the grace of Jesus, we are to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So I've never talked to a soldier who loved boot camp. I've never talked to a soldier who loved combat. But they believe that the interests of the country that they're fighting for are greater than their own feelings. And so they go through rigorous training in order to please their commanding officer and in order to win a strategic battle, even though it costs them greatly and might even cost them their life. Okay, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Guys, one of the most crazy things I've ever heard about an athlete is that Michael Phelps, famous swimmer, did not miss a day in the pool for 10 years when he was training for the Olympics. He was in the pool eight hours a day for 10 years because he knew that if he missed one day, he would give a leg up to his competition. And so we know that athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, they make incredible sacrifices in order to get a gold medal hung around their neck. And the Apostle Paul is saying, there's something much greater at stake than a piece of gold. There is eternal life at stake. There's the life of your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers at stake. And then finally, he says, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So we know that farmers 
have to be diligent to plow the field, they have to be diligent to plant the crop, and they have to be diligent to harvest the crop all at the right time and in the right season so that they can yield a return on their investment. Now, what's true about all of these different descriptions that Paul gives, particularly of the athlete and the farmer, is that they involve both hard work, that is effort, and they involve God's grace. Here's what I mean by that. Think of an athlete. There's some of us who could spend 10 straight years in the pool, and all we would do is almost drown. It doesn't matter how much you swim. I mean, you might be in decent shape, but you're not going to be an Olympic swimmer, even if you spend that much time. And so part of the reason that Michael Phelps was able to be such a great swimmer is because he also had physical gifts that came from God, and he was putting those gifts to good use with his effort. Okay, a farmer may be incredibly diligent to put a crop in. They might do everything right, and then a hailstorm comes through and ruins the entire crop. Athletes and farmers both put in tremendous effort and are dependent on the gifts and the grace of God. And similarly, in our sanctification, it requires both effort and the grace of God. It's hard work to be a disciple of Jesus. It's something that we can put effort into and do. And it's also something that is a gift of God. So there's this tension in the Christian life between effort and grace. But here's my encouragement to you not to try to understand that because you'll just spin your wheels. It's to understand that your growth happens in that tension. Your growth happens in that atmosphere, in that pressure. To know that it takes effort, but it also is not something that you can do directly. It's something that God is doing in you. So what exactly is God calling us to be strengthened for, to train for, to aim at, and to do? I think he spells it out really clearly for us in verse 2. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to, to teach others also. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying that we should be strengthened to do. It's not just our own personal growth in Jesus, although that's important. It's that we would aim to influence others for Jesus. One of the best ways to grow personally is to take on leadership of others. It's automatic accountability. And Paul is saying to Timothy, I don't want you to just focus on your own growth as a Christian. I want you to find people in your life who you can pour into. And he says, this is what you're looking for. Faithful people 
who will be able to teach others also. So he's saying, look for people that are available, that are wanting to learn and wanting to grow in their relationship with Jesus, who are a little bit behind you in their faith, and I want you to aim your life in that direction, which obviously is going to look a little bit different for Timothy than it will for you. But let me just apply this in one specific way that is presently applicable and is becoming more applicable for people in our church. Let's take the example of parenting. Okay, let's take these principles. Okay, here's how it feels to have really young kids. It feels like being a farmer, except for nothing is growing. Okay, I get an amen from some parents with young kids. It's like you're trying to do the discipline thing, you're trying to do the teaching thing, trying to pray, you're trying to share scripture with your kids, and you're doing, you think, faithful farming. And what's coming out is crap, both literally and figuratively. And you're just like, am I wasting my time? Is there ever going to be harvest? Is there ever going to be anything that good that comes out of this? Does my labor matter? And the Apostle Paul is saying, just wait. Wait. Because yes, you're putting the effort in. Yes, you've got sleepless nights. Yes, you're changing diapers. Yes, you're praying for your kids. Yes, you're investing in them. But you're not going to see an immediate return. You're like a farmer. And part of farming is sitting on the front porch and getting a glass of lemonade because you can't do anything. You can't make corn grow. You can't change the lives of your kids. You can't change the lives of your friends. But that doesn't mean that your work doesn't matter. So here's how Paul summarizes this tension in the Christian life. Verse 7, he says, think over what I say. That's effort. Think. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other, in other words, this is how Paul thinks about effort and the grace of God in the life of a Christian. God's work is the reason that we are motivated for our work. Think over what I say. Why would you think over what Paul says? Why would you consider what he says? Why would you put an effort in to understand what Paul is writing? Because God will give you understanding as a free gift. So we can be motivated to put the work in because God is at work in our work. Look at how Paul put this into action in his own life. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. By the way, he's talking about any of the other apostles. I think Paul's a little bit competitive. I worked harder than Peter. That's hilarious. Um, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
I think all of us need to have that attitude instilled in us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I have my certain gifts, my certain talents, my certain abilities. But I am going to work as hard as I can with what God has given me. And then at the end of the day, I'm going to worship him because I know that even my work ethic comes from him as a gift. And so because of the life that is promised in Jesus... I want us to put our faith into action. How can you trust God this week to take hold of the life that he's given you? How can you fan that into flame? Let's pray that that would be characteristic of our lives. Um, Jesus, we do not want your grace, your salvation of us to be in vain. We want to work hard. We want to take on this challenge to fan our faith into flame, to suffer for the gospel, and to take on the attitude of a good farmer who puts the work in and trusts that you are going to bring the crop in season. And so I ask that for those of us who are discouraged coming into this morning, that we would be encouraged once again to walk diligently in our faith and to honor you in all that we do. Pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.